Okay, Dr. Patrick Mardini of the Lebanese Institute for Market Studies. You are the president and founder, is that correct? Yes, sir. I know there's a lot going on right now in, in Lebanon and Beirut, but I wanted to start by just having you sort of explain what the Institute does and, and why you founded it and what your priorities are. So the Lebanese Institute for Market Studies is a free market think tank. We promote market-oriented policies. Uh, so our work is divided into research. We actually uh, check what are the problems facing Lebanon, and we try to figure out solutions, market-friendly solutions. Then we promote those ideas. We have a wide media exposure. Uh, uh, we are basically everywhere on TV, radio, and in newspapers. And then we reach out to policymakers and try to advocate for those policy reforms in order to have them done. So we've been working on several uh, issues. Electricity is one of them. The devaluation of the Lebanese currency is another one. Uh, most of our work is focused on privatization, competition, smaller government, basically a more private initiative, less uh, restrictions and interventionism. And unfortunately, right now, it seems like there are way too many opportunities to to introduce market reforms into the Lebanese economy. And and I think a lot of uh, certainly a lot of Americans, but I think globally, a lot of people maybe haven't been paying attention to the economic crisis in Lebanon until the explosion in the port of Beirut. What tell us briefly what happened? So, uh, about the crisis or the explosion? The explosion. Okay, so it seems that uh, uh, some uh, a heavy quantity of ammonium nitrate was uh, stored at the port of Beirut. Now, this is really um, this is really interesting because the port of Beirut is in the middle of a very crowded area, and this material can become potentially explosive if it has been mixed up with some kind of fuel or or or, or a kind of combustible, right? But what is really interesting is that. Uh, a private company would have never stored this type of material in one of the most expensive residential areas in the countries, right? And it has been laying down there for the past six years for free, for no storage cost. And that's really crazy. And it shows you how the government management of those kind of assets can be very, very damaging. And we saw it, right? It's not only it was mismanaged, misstored. Why, why was it over there? I mean, it doesn't make any sense from an economic perspective to have those 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 materials over there so basically it seems that i mean the the dominant narrative and you have a lot of speculations around it but the dominant narrative is that uh, a ship of ammonium nitrate have been basically seized uh, along the coast of lebanon they uh, they seized the merchandise stored them in hangar 12 and now we had a small fire in hangar uh, 9 which led to some firework, fireworks, and those fireworks started the biggest explosion. So it is an accident theory. And uh, since it is an accident, it means that there is a mismanagement of, uh, of, of, of the whole thing, right? How they are stored, why the accident happened. Uh, and this kind of, ex I mean, this accident led to the uh, resignation of the Lebanese government. That's in a nutshell. Now, many people are challenging this narrative. They look at the shape and the color of the smoke 
uh, yielded by the explosion. And they say that there have been some, maybe there have been some, uh, 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 what do you call it, military materials uh, burning with alongside the ammonium nitrate, right? And some people go as far as saying that it was actually an attack, a bomb that triggered the explosion. Uh, but this is not really the dominant theory. This is like the, the conspiracy theory, I would say. But, that but might it, end up being the right one. I mean, we, we still don't have the result of the investigation, right? Yeah, we, we don't know that, but we, we do know for certain that the uh, bureaucracy and uh, corruption in government led to this insane outcome where you had this very explosive material sitting in the center of your city for, for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, the port of Beirut have always been famous in Lebanon with the nickname of the Alibaba Grotto. And the Alibaba Grotto is where you have the 40 thieves, right? That's that's where, I mean, right? And it means that it has always been a place for corruption, right? People smuggle many things in and out through the port of Beirut. Uh, if you look at the routine, if you look at... I mean, it takes you 180 hours uh, to get uh, your merchandise if you are importing goods compared to nine hours in developed countries. And for paperwork, it takes you 72 hours for, uh, for, for port compliance, while in other countries, I mean, in, in more developed countries, it takes you around three or four hours, right? So this long procedures, those many papers, they lead to a lot of corruption, a lot of bribes, but also a lot of smuggling. And it has always been known in Lebanon that this part is very, very corrupt. Like most government institutions in Lebanon, I mean, entrenched corruption is a big problem in the country, and the port have been the crown jewel of this corruption, and the result, we saw it. The, um, the bomb, uh, I shouldn't call it a bomb, the explosion was, was devastating, though, because it was in the city center. Um, the last number I saw was, was some 150 people that we know about were killed in the explosion. Is your family safe? Uh, yes, we live uh, in the northern part of Lebanon, not in Beirut. So we were really spared. My sister happened to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, I mean, she was in Beirut when, when the explosion took place. She was at a mall, the whole mall collapsed, but she is safe, she is unharmed. Her car has been damaged, but that's, you know, I mean, that's not a big deal compared to the other damages that the whole city have been suffering. I think that we have been spared. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> um, I, I want to get back to the, the question of, of co government corruption and financial mismanagement, because this, this, this latest episode is, is really just part of a perfect storm that's been happening for years. But, but one story that, that I thought was, was interesting and, and sort of an uplifting, promising story about, about the people, the Lebanese people, is that they knew in the aftermath of this explosion that the government was was incapable, unwilling, financially unable to do anything about about cleaning up Beirut. So they've they've swarmed to the city and they've taken that responsibility for themselves. Kind of kind of crowdsourcing, uh, uh, cleaning up and and helping and and trying to bring back to a semblance of normal. Is that is that typical of the Lebanese people, or is that a new response to this government? I think it's it's a new, I mean we have never witnessed 
uh, a similar accident before, so you cannot compare uh, in order to assess if this is a new kind of attitude or it has always been like that. But this this solidarity movement that took place have been fabulous. I mean, you know, the whole city have been destroyed, the poor have been destroyed. I, I, I walked through the streets of Beirut East Beirut, where, where the blast had the most impact. I mean, you can see all the building destroyed, no glasses on the windows, everything is in the street. And especially young people, you see them with shuffles, you see them in the street cleaning up, helping families. It was amazing, right? I mean, in this moment of despair, uh, you see those, especially young people, going there and trying to help. You can see the families crying, uh, uh, you know, because they feel that they are not left alone. This moment was was really was really fascinating, right? Uh, so uh, so yeah. In the past, we've had uh, some wars, right? But wars usually take a long time. It takes you 30 years to start a war and finish it. While this happened like instantly, brutally, in a couple of seconds, and it was done, and then everybody went, went systematically to the street. And this kind of reaction actually contrasts with the government reaction, where the government did not do anything. Uh, basically, they just sent some military to organize the traffic. Right. <laughs> that's that's all what they did. And and people were left alone basically to help each other so far. And now they actually kind of installed a new uh, law, which is really weird, a new decision, which is like any group who is trying to do a work on the ground, help help the people, they should register uh, and obtain an, a registration in order to be allowed to operate. So now they are actually putting restrictions on the work of those people who volunteer and who want to do good work. So the government cannot do anything, doesn't want to do anything, and now they don't let anybody also do anything, and that's, that's really crazy. But I mean, those restrictions are not very harsh so far. They now, for now, they just ask people to register, right, to, to to put their name on a list. Let's see the next step. What 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 will it be? Kind of a kind of a tragic metaphor where the people have stepped up and essentially privatized government services because they knew it couldn't be done from the top down, so they're doing it from the bottom up. And the government comes in and says, "Well, um, and and I'll use an American word. You need a license to do this." And 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 our regulatory system loves to force everyone to 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 be registered because they hate the competition. And I think, I think that's what's really going on there. Um, it, it reminds me of the first time we met um, at the Atlas Network several years ago. You were pitching an idea to privatize the provision of energy and, and, and the electrical grid in Lebanon. Uh, talk about that project because I, I think it applies to a lot of the problems that you're seeing in your country today. So uh, in Lebanon, uh, when when I did the pitch, we had 12 hours of daily blackouts, right? So if you live in uh, uh, in Lebanon, then you have electricity for only 12 hours. However, everybody has a small generator. Actually, you have some small entrepreneurs who sell uh, subscription service. You subscribe to the generation service. And so you actually have 24 hours, half of it supplied regularly by a big factory, you know, by a big power plant. And the other half is supplied by a small entrepreneur who, who, who sells you subscription at a very high price, right? Now, this 
subscription part was illegal and is still illegal actually because the government has the monopoly of producing, distributing and selling electricity across the country. So if there is an entrepreneur willing to build a power plant and sell electricity to people, they were not allowed, right? So the government was unable to provide electricity and unwilling to let anybody else do it, basically. And that that was the setting initially. So what we have been what we have been pushing for was to legalize electricity in Lebanon because it's illegal to produce electricity in Lebanon if you are not the government, right? And I mean, the reason they wanted to be a government monopoly because of entrenched corruption. Again, the government had a plan of like four. I mean. $4.5 billion to build power plant and, you know, and renew. And they have been spending fortunes on the sector year after year without actually improving the service because as long as the problem persists, they can spend even more on it. And that's how government works. So basically we come in and we said, you know what? Government should stop spending. If you want the sector to be fixed, Government should get out of it, let private companies come in, independent power producers, let them come in, produce electricity and sell it. We've been pushing for that and we got a law in May uh, 2019, so like last year, a year ago, law 129-129. And this law allows private companies to come in, produce electricity in, in a BOT format, built operator transfer format, where a private company will come in, build an electricity power plant from their own money, uh, manage the electricity, sell it, sell the, the electricity basically, and then and then get some profit. And after 30 years or like a certain lapse of time, this factory would go back to, to the government. Now, I would have preferred to go to a BOO model, build, operate, own, where the factory will always stay uh, within the private uh, entity. That's how you ensure proper maintenance and long life and, and renewal of, of all the equipment. But, uh, you know, you need to take it step by step, right? So first you convince them of a BOT model. And then like in, in a couple of years, you, you say, you know what? The private sector have actually fixed it. Why don't we go one step further and just keep it with them and let's not recover it? So this was the setting in 2019. We were very excited to have the law. And then Lebanon uh, falls in a harsh economic recession, uh, deep uh, financial crisis. Uh, banks are all in a situation of default. The country has been downgraded massively. Government defaulted on the payment of debt, uh, $90 billion debt uh, the government defaulted. And they dis and, and the, 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 mostly the holders of the government debt was Lebanese, were Lebanese banks. So since banks cannot get their money from the public sector, from the government and the central bank. They cannot pay depositors anymore. So the whole country collapsed, basically. And this was before the explosion and before COVID-19. And then on top of the depression, basically, you have COVID-19. And then on top of all of that, you have the explosion. So although we have a law that allows private electricity generation, unfortunately, we did not. it was not implemented yet because of all those troubles that came you know, uh, in, in the middle, basically. It sounds like you need a lot more privatization quickly to to dig out of that hole. But let's let's talk about let's talk about sovereign debt because I, I feel like that's the that's the the core problem here, or at least a, poor, a core symptom of the problem. The last I checked, it was 183 percent of GDP. I'm sure it's much higher than that now because of COVID and the economic collapse. What where why is the government um, so deep in debt that it defaulted? Uh, now, the, 
I mean, I can do a very long uh, interpretation of that, but I'm, I'm just try. I will try to cut the long story short. So uh, the government business model since the 90s have been to borrow money and spend on the public sector, right? Uh, on mostly electricity, telecom, roads, uh, uh, you know, everything, all, all the public sector, all, all the things that government manage, a huge number of public sector employees, and uh, a lot of tender, public tenders and public contracts. And you had a lot of corruption in all those contracts. And you had a lot of clientelism in public sector employment, where basically you employ somebody because his family will vote for you in the election. That's how the system have been set since the 90s, right? So basically, the business model of all Lebanese politicians was to actually get into power, spend a lot of money to buy up their, your vote and then get re-elected. That's, that's in, in simple terms. Now I can go back to the civil war and, and retrace the roots of that model, how did we emerge, but I don't think it would be interesting for you unless you want me to talk more about it. Now, so basically the government have been building up debt year after year and we got into a very high level of public debt. The public debt became unsustainable. I mean, we had high economic growth, so you could justify high high debt if you had high growth. You could say, you know what, one day I will be able to pay it. But then in 2011, we got a reduction in growth. We were growing at, before 2011, we were growing at an 8% uh, rate per year. After 2011, the war in Syria, which is a neighboring country, uh, growth went down to 2% per year. And then in the past two years, the growth went down to zero, right? And we entered a recession in 2019. So with a high debt, when you enter a recession, session, your debt becomes unsustainable. The government is unable to pay back debt because you are not generating enough growth. And so basically banks and foreign investors, foreign market decided that they don't want to lend government money anymore. And government was basically addicted to borrowing, right? We, we were running, and we are still running a fiscal uh, deficit, a huge fiscal deficit. The government spends much more than the income. They need to borrow year after year. If you don't give them money, well, they cannot, uh, they cannot continue. And that's how the whole system collapsed. And this kind of mechanism normally should lead you to do some uh, structural reform, namely cut your spending, right, in order to match it with your income. Instead of doing that, what they are doing now is financing those spending with inflation. And that's why we, Lebanon, entered hyperinflation a couple of months ago. And, uh, and basically, the Lebanese pound lost around 80% of its value, right? So you are totally correct. The root cause of the problem is the high debt uh, uh, due to the fiscal deficit, right? So you built up debt to finance your fiscal deficit. And when you were unable to borrow money anymore, they started to print money to finance this deficit. That's where we are today. It's a it's a classic. Uh, I'm I'm an Austrian economist by training, and it's a it's a classic uh, cautionary story about what happens when um, you you tax as much as you can tax. So you stop taxing and you start borrowing. You borrow as much as you can borrow, and eventually no one will loan you money anymore. And then you start debasing the currency, all of which is a is a massive scheme to steal from the working class to sort of finance the insiders and the political class and. And I want Americans to hear that story because we do all of the same things and we're spoiled in the sense that we haven't really paid a price for that yet, but, but it's happening in your country right before your eyes. 
And when it happens, it happens brutally. You, you don't feel it. It happens like one shot, right? So people who are actually ha used to have a, a good standard of living, an acceptable standard of living in Lebanon, right? And with, the, with an 80% devaluation of the currency, people became poor uh, in, 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 in a blink of an eye, basically, right? Like uh, simply the same salary that you used to make uh, last year or last month, now it can buy you only 20% of what it used to buy you before. So basically, you be you become very poor. And usually, those kind of crises. I mean, what happened in Lebanon is that this massive devaluation of the currency comes with a banking crisis, meaning that your savings you cannot recover them anymore. Even if you saved your money, I mean, if you saved your money in the local currency, you lost the values of your savings. Right? You lost 80% of the value of your savings. But even if you have saved your money in another currency, in Lebanon, dollarization was around 76%. So people kept their money, their savings in dollar because they did not trust the government because they were afraid the government would start printing money. But then what happened is that the banks collapsed and people are unable to recover their savings. So people simultaneously lost their jobs because of the recession and business closures, lost their income and lost their life saving and everything happened simultaneously and that's what you call the crisis. And then if you live in Beirut, you also lost your house and your uh, office or your shop and your car because of the explosion. So imagine you, you are somebody who lives in Beirut. You've already lost the money at the bank account. You've already lost your income and your job. You had, you know, you had diversified your portfolio. You've probably bought an apartment, a car, kept some money in the bank, and probably opened a shop or something where you lost everything simultaneously. And that's that's a big problem. I mean, that's that's a tragedy. And ter Terry and I have a friend, uh, uh, Leopold, who lost all of his savings. His parents lost everything they had, and they would have been the, the middle class of Lebanon. So I think I think every person needs to understand like uh, I know you're a, you're a professor of finance and and I'm an economist and we will prattle on about about debt and inflation and mismanagement of currency and and for a lot of people that's that's kind of a dry subject it's kind of boring but this this is where it translates into human loss loss of life loss loss of prosperity and and loss of everything that that we all work for so I think that and, and I should add and you mentioned this but on top of all of that, the COVID lockdowns created massive unemployment beyond where you were at the beginning of the year. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Uh, Lebanon relies heavily on tourism. That's like the most dynamic industry. We have nice beaches. Usually people come in summer to enjoy their time. You have good restaurants, cafes, pubs, nightclubs. I mean, it's a, it's a nice city to go out, good hotels. And then uh, you, you had the recession, all those businesses, all this tourism industry was suffering, basically, or the restaurants were really suffering. And then you got COVID with the lockdown. So it was like, you know, I mean, it killed them, basically, right? And especially that the lockdown, I mean, the lockdown meant that people should stay at home. Uh, shops were not allowed, I mean, restaurants were not allowed to open only for delivery, but, you know, I mean, you don't have seating. And, and then they closed the airport 
And I mean, without airport, you cannot have any any tourists coming in. And Lebanon has a huge diaspora, and those people come in summer to enjoy their time and see their their family. It was impossible this year. So actually, the 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 businesses that were suffering already were actually demolished with with the lockdown due to the virus. And and but then again, you still had your shop, you still had your restaurant, you still had your hotel, and you said, you know what, this year maybe we'll make a lot of losses, but next year things might get better. And then you had the explosion where the whole hotel comes down to earth, right? And and the whole thing is destroyed. So we used to have a problem where we used to have a capital that is not generating income, right? You used to have those this physical capital that was not working. Now we lost this actual physical capital with the explosion. And people who have savings at the bank, they cannot recover their savings in order to fix this capital because of the banking crisis. And the banking crisis simply means that banks took people money, lend them to the government, and the government spent, wasted this money, and now this money is not available anymore, right? So what can we do? We can just print new money and give it to you, thus hyperinflation. So basically, people lost their saving. I mean, they lost everything simultaneously and really quickly, and it was it was massive, massive and quick. Wow. So I, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I feel like you as the head of the uh, preeminent free market institute in Lebanon, um, you got to fix this problem for us. And, and I feel like there's a, there is a solution here in exactly what you did with electricity reform, um, starting with the port of Beirut. What, what should we do there? So we have been, I mean, the, 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 after the explosion, the next day we started promoting Open, I'm privatizing the port, but then opening all Lebanese ports to competition, right? In Lebanon, we have four, three small ports and one big port, which is the port of Beirut. And I believe that if we want to wait for the government to fix the port of Beirut, Beirut will never have a port again. The government won't be able to do that. They would raise money, spend them year after year, pretending to want to fix the port, but they will never fix it, right? The only way to fix the port quickly and have it working better than before is to actually privatize it. I think that's the only choice we have. But then not only privatize it, we have three other ports in other regions in Lebanon, one to the north and two to the south. Privatize them as well and let them compete. And if the port of Beirut uh, service importers and it take them 180 hours to get their goods out and 72 hours to finish with compliance measures, right, maybe Maybe the port of Tripoli can do better, and then you will you will have you you will shift the business to the port of Tripoli, and then this would give an incentive to the port of Beirut to improve the service. And if by any chance the port of Beirut wastes very valuable space storing explosive goods at the port, then you know they will be wasting money. And if an accident like this happens in the future and the port is privately managed, at least the private company would be accountable and can pay back the victim, while now the government is accountable and the government won't pay anyone because the government does not have any money. Anyway, the government will never sue itself, right? So basically, I think that privatization of all Lebanese ports 
and opening them to competition should be the cornerstone of rebuilding the ports. However, you have, as I said, in trench, I mean, it's Alibaba and it's the, the, the house of the 40 thieves. And those 40 thieves are mostly uh, basically um, statesmen and, uh, and ministers and, and political leaders. So it's very hard to convince them to drop uh, a, very, a very lucrative business model. And that's the fight we need to do. Well, you, you obviously had some success with, with electricity, and I assume that same sort of uh, 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 personal corruption dominated that industry as well. And, and I have this theory, and maybe it's more a, of a hope than a theory, that government will eventually do the right thing after they've exhausted every single other option. And it sounds like uh, the Lebanese government has done everything wrong for so long, maybe Maybe they have to do the right thing because they don't really have any choices. And I hope that's true. I hope. The thing is, they get really good in creating new wrong options every time. So if you if you want to wait for them, I mean, they, they can get very creative. Uh, uh, what I think is aware, awareness is very important, right? If the public understands clearly that the only reason they want this sport to be government-owned is to do corruptions, and I mean, right, then they would feel that their seats in the parliament and in the cabinet are in danger, and they might end up doing the right thing. So awareness is very, very important. And in Lebanon, it's usually harder to raise awareness because any topic that you discuss, political parties tend to make it look like an attack on their sect, on their religion, right? They bring it to identity politics so that you would forget the real corruption behind it. So if I attack you, you would say, oh, you are attacking me because I'm a Christian American, uh, right? And 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 then you, you get all the identity group rally around you, basically. And that's how they get away with it. So so you need to do, uh, uh, you need to raise awareness, but you need to take this variable into consideration and you need to do it in a clever way. The, um, there was a protest, uh, one, one of the um, attempts, you know this story, I'm sure, uh, one of the attempts by the government to, to close the financial gap was a new tax on, on WhatsApp services, which I'm sure are absolutely a lifeline, communications life, lifeline in Lebanon as they are in most of the world. And you had these massive protests where, where all of the sects came together and they were sort of proud of the fact that they had unified and they had they finally had a common enemy and it uh, a lot of the comments were were quite uh, liberty based quite market based because they they just didn't trust the government anymore so they were going to come together and try to solve this problem through protesting is that an opportunity for you well it is it is very i mean what happened was very important because uh, the population was fed up with taxes, right? And 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 people like to call it the WhatsApp revolution, and I like to call it the taxes revolution because it's not the WhatsApp, it's the tax on WhatsApp that triggered. People actually revolted against taxation. That's what happened, right? Now, it happened that the tax was on WhatsApp. It could have been on something else. The, the reaction would have been the same. And yes, 
indeed we had, I mean, they, they call it the revolution in Lebanon. It was a protest, but people like to exaggerate things. So they, they call it a revolution. And, and this revolution indeed brought people from different sectarian perspective. Now, governments are really good at breaking down protests, right? They know how to bring protesters against each other, right? And then try to get religion and sectarianism into the protest in order to break them down along sectarian lines, right? And government is really good at that, so they did that extensively. And on the other hand, they uh, they used the, the the secret services to 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 basically infiltrate all those groups, and and they toughened up the the police and and the crackdown on protesters. So so they had a nice cocktail of different ways to basically kill this this movement and they kind of managed to weak it a lot but then after the explosion people went back to the street of, of Beirut people went back to the street they were fed up and the first revolution got down the Hariri government and the, the explosion is in Beirut also got down I mean the 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 the, the Diab government stepped down as well so so the protests have already taken down two governments, I would say. Protesters would love to take down the parliament and organize early elections, because with the same parliament, you'll have the same cabinet with different names, but the same political parties controlling the cabinet, right? And protesters are unhappy with that. And I think that the, the what, what politicians figured out is that let's sacrifice the government so that we can keep the parliament, right? And we won't have elections until, uh, until 2022. That's a long time from now. And so, so yeah, and that's where we are politically. Are you are you optimistic that you can get change? Uh, I do believe that the current political parties that are represented in the government are highly representative within the population. It will be very hard to bring them down because simply they rely extensively on sectarian solidarity, on identity politics, basically, right? So I am a Christian and thus you should vote for me even if I am corrupt because the alternative would be the Muslims taking power in Lebanon. And same thing in the Muslims group, in the Shia group, in the Sunni group, in the Druze group, right? And every every political leader try to picture himself as the defender of the, of the sect and uh, the protector of the sect against the aggression or the dominance of the other religions in the country. And that's why basically people will systematically vote for him even if he is corrupt. And I think that this thing still exists and it will exist. And now it's sleeping a little bit because you don't have election, but before election, political leaders are really good in bringing it up, right? And, 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 and investing in this sentiment, in this feeling in order to get people to vote for them. This being said, I do think that many people are fed up with this system. And I think that the degree or the number of people fed up with this system is increasing. Now, will it be high enough to overrule the whole political class? I really doubt, but I do think that if we have elections today, then protesters will have a big group in the parliament that can change the political game, flip it one way into a, or, or another. They won't overrule everybody, but they will have a larger space in the parliament. That might help them make some changes. Do you, where do people find out more? Um, you, you guys have done so much work on all of the issues we're talking about. Where can people find out more about, about the work that you do? 
So uh, we have a website, www.limslb.com, uh, so limslb.com, and we also have a Facebook page, which is the same, like Facebook slash L-I-M-S-L-B, right? Uh, so on the Facebook, now many of the content is in Arabic, right? A lot, I mean, most of the content is, is in Arabic, but there is always an English. On the Facebook page, we are trying to provide English content, right? So, like, you do an interview with the TV, and the interview would be in, uh, in Arabic, but you will have a small summary in English on the Facebook uh, post, right? So, we are trying to provide some English content as well, but the Arabic content is much more extensive, I would say. Okay. Well, thank you, Patrick. Be safe and please, please keep fighting for, for these principles. It, it really matters. Thank you. Uh, real pleasure talking to you. And uh, let's hope for the best. Always. We have to, right? Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.